There's a whole new generation of people now. They don't know what the breadth and width of Skinnerd is. And I say, have you heard Leonard Skinnerd? And they said, yeah, yeah, free bird. Sweet home Alabama. I said, I mean anything else? Well, and I sit him down and I play him stuff. They go, wow, that's great. Like that. He called himself the Mississippi Kid. I never understood that because I'm from Mississippi. And I asked him about that one time. I said, Ronnie, you know what? And he said, I don't know. But he died in Mississippi. Hi, and welcome to Gonzarilla. This is a podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of excessive consumption. My name is Brian Bentley, and I want to welcome you to a show today that's going to deal with one of my favorite topics yet again, the original Leonard Skinner and the legendary story of lead singer and lyricist Ronnie Van Zant. There have been a half dozen films and documentaries made on the story of the original Leonard Skinner, but in my own personal view, there's only one definitive documentary, and that's If I Leave Here Tomorrow, a film about Leonard Skinner. What you just heard was an audio sample from the introduction to the movie, which was released in 2018, but the film's back again in the spotlight. It just recently made its debut on Netflix. And this is no mean feat for a music documentary to be featured on the most prestigious streaming platform in the world. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing the editor of that movie and the person responsible for bringing together all of the cuts, the music, the animation, and giving this film life and a narrative that makes it one of the snappiest and most dynamic documentaries ever made anywhere on any band. Will you please welcome Claire Didier to the show? Hey, thank you. What an intro. I got to tell you, it's got to be a very exciting time for you because I was looking at your resume and you're one of these professionals in the TV and film business who work a lot and you got a lot of different projects going, but to land this incredible documentary, if I leave here tomorrow, the story of the original Leonard Skinner on Netflix, that's got to feel extra special. It's really great that it's on Netflix now because it's just opened up to such a huge audience. You know, I mean, originally this was a a country music television production. Right. And then it went to Showtime. By the time we were done with it, it was a Showtime production. And that's just, um, it's just a little more niche, you know? Yeah. It was kind of more of a hard sell. And I think a lot of people didn't know it existed. 
except for through social media. So this is just great. Showtime's pretty prestigious. I mean, when it debuted on Showtime, I was impressed by that. But then to go to Netflix, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, people are going to stumble upon it, which <laughs> is great. It seems like music documentaries, like to me in the last few years, are just exploding in numbers and popularity. A lot of people maybe still homebound. There's a lot of boomers and Gen X people in the audiences. Why do you think music documentaries seem to just be taking off right now? I mean, when I first cut my first doc in the late 90s, it was at that time it was exploding because suddenly it was cheaper to make a documentary, right? You could shoot on mini DV, you didn't have to shoot on film, you could edit. I don't know if iMovie was around, but it's just gotten progressively cheaper and people, more and more people have started doing it. And I think now, like in the last 10 years, Netflix, all these, all these different um, platforms are like, yeah, give us content and give us content about things that people want to know about, you know? Yeah. There's so many people that could use a good bio and it's not like behind the music and it's, it doesn't need to be trashy and short. You can really deep dive into, I mean, I, it's like everyone will get their documentary, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you earlier about your history with the band before that, and you said that uh, you had very little knowledge of Leonard Skinner other than, you know, Freebird and the hits. So true. But yet you still put together a film that just kind of reeks, I would say, of authority to it. I mean, how did you get the opportunity to work on this? Well, it was all Stephen Kayak, the director. Um, I mean, he has his own story, incredible story of just how he ended up directing this. But basically, he came to me originally for his um, film, We Are X, about X Japan, which is a really great film. Um, I didn't work on it because I wasn't a native Japanese speaker. But he called me up again later when he had a Judy Garland film and a Leonard Skinner film. And he, we, we just really wanted to work together. So it was like, whichever we're going to do first, we don't know. So we would literally have conversations about both Judy Garland and Leonard Skinner and why we care and why they're amazing. <laughs> and, um, and Skinner went first. We just, it was like every, all the, all the pieces fell together. And I remember sitting at a coffee shop and having him lay out album by album, how the Skinner story goes, you know, and it was, fascinating and i also thought it was really funny because i know he's like he's kind of a goth like you know he's he did the scott walker film like yes. he's he's got he he's he has an amazing um cool music taste and i was kind of like okay so this is the sweet home alabama guys you know i i was naive i admit it um but to me it kind of doesn't matter i wasn't even excited about the music i was excited about their story which sounded incredible you know to go from the swamp to fame and then have it all crash you know that's yeah. that's a great story so when we got into it it was only when we started really getting into the edit and i was listening to all the albums and i was like wow this is this to me is untapped amazing rock and roll you know i'm i'm a i'm a rocker i like rock and roll um so yeah it was it was i came to realize that i think it helped me to i mean i wasn't a snob about it i i didn't think i wasn't gonna like it i just wasn't i wasn't told i didn't go in thinking that and it blew my mind the yeah. more i listened to it the more i was just like this is incredible you know and it was like i ain't the one instantly was my favorite and I just like cut and open because yeah. I was feeling it. And it was, I, I think actually I was blessed to hear all this for the first time as an adult and not have it be something I grew up listening to. Isn't that amazing though, when yeah. you get turned on to something that you would never have seen in a million years, there's so much more to the story of this band. I mean, you got to work with a character in Ronnie Van Zant, that I mean, could you ask for a richer oh. background? Yeah, 
I did an interview last year with Al Cooper, who does the um, introductory um, announcing in the clip we heard on the intro. The thing that I got from that interview and also from talking to Jared Cohn, who directed the uh, Artemis Pyle mm. biopic Street Survivors, was that the one thing when you're dealing with Skinner fans, these are the most diehard fans in the world, and they're unbelievably loyal and protective of the band's legacy. And yeah, they're especially in the Artemis Pyle situation, distrusting oh, yeah. of what you might call like the big city movie studios. Oh, big time. As far as Artemis's movie goes, when I was talking to Jared, we were talking about how Judy Janess Van Zandt mm. went with a team of lawyers after the film because she was saying that Artemis was trying to manipulate the story to make himself look good. So there's a if you go on the Skinner Facebook groups, of which there are probably close to a million members online. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Fanat- it's fanatic. Mm. Did you feel did you and Steven feel that pressure that you had to get it right? Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. Yeah, you want to get it right, especially when you're trying to make the definitive doc about um, a band with so much so many fans and such huge story. But but I th- I would say also, like, I think, you know, Stephen was really deep diving in those worlds where I really wasn't. I was trying to keep myself, you know, I, I didn't even really watch any of the other docs about the band. Um, I knew that probably eventually a good idea. I would. Yeah, I just didn't want it to to, you know refocus anything that I was going to experience. I mean, it's so rare. You know, I always say like I'm a huge Prince fan. Do I want to edit the Prince movie? Probably not. I don't, I don't think I could be objective, you know? Yeah. But Skinner, it was just like, wow, are you (laughs) kidding? Tell me more, you know, like this is incredible. So I, there was, there's always pressure to get it right. But it was also like, let's make the film that I feel like is here and that we have. I mean, because it really is just, if you think this is how I consider editing, it's like, you're really just assembling a collage of documentary editing. You're assembling a montage of what you have available. You know, there's not, you can't go get more material. I mean, you can do recreations and stuff, but it's like, we just needed to make what we, what it was going to be. I was like, I'll deal with what we got right and wrong after we make this and before we finish it. Your style of editing, I would describe, and a couple of people who watched the film with me, everybody used these words, rhythmic, dynamic, flowing with the storyline of the song. Let's talk about a couple of examples that I, I actually took out from watching the film the other night. On the clip for Poison Whiskey, for instance, you use an animation tool to write the mm. lyrics on the screen in the exact font as the liner notes for the pronounced album. Oh, yeah, and that's that like was in cool. perfect sync with the vocal. Yeah. And then on Need All My Friends, the animation there, it comes alive, it pulsates, it glows. And the way the photos on the strips of film split in half on the screen and then slide up and down. Yeah. It's creative and inventive and so different than the, you know, talking head shot, still frame, talking head shot, still yeah, frame. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Love to hear it. This is Stephen Kayak, his vision. He's at this point, like a dear friend, but he's just a joy to work with because he is always thinking outside of the box, not as a goal, just that's how he makes his films, you know? And um, like the, the like poison whiskey, these scenes you're talking about, that was totally him. Like we, we're going to put the lyrics up. We're going to rip it from the, the liner, you know, the album. So then I made the, ba- you know, we had all this incredible photos that we got from all these crazy different sources. Yeah. I was going to ask you where you got some of those. Cause I've, I've, seen a lot of them, but I've never seen a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other story. But so I would take what we had and basically make a framework of what we wanted to see in the animation. And then we handed it over to this um, woman at her company in London, Blue Spill, Alison Brownmore. Um, and they did a lot of a lot of those super top-notch animations, that was all them. Okay. And yeah. 
And so it was kind of a collaboration that way, but it was like Stephen mastermind, I would build the, the scaffolding and then Allison would just like take it to these places where it was, it was incredible. The way the introduction goes, because you mentioned I Ain't the One, it's an amazing song. Bob Burns, the original drummer for Skinner, yeah. uh, he does a, a shuffle pattern on that thing where I believe at one point Ronnie's on stage at the Nebworth 76 show in England just for a second. And he, oh, shake, yeah. he shakes his head to this shuffle beat that goes chicka, 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 chicka. Yeah, like his, yeah. head, his head goes right with the beat. And I, I was just so blown away at that, that you get into the story so fast. And mm. within the first five minutes, you've established, like in any good novel or any good anything, you've established the background, the main character, the dynamic between the members. When you were doing that editing, was that something for that first song? Tell me more about that, because I, I seriously think that that's one of the best edited things that I've ever seen coming into a documentary. That was pure combination of like going through the Skinner albums, right? And hearing that song and being like, that is the most badass rock and roll song I've ever heard. And then paired with all this footage that like Stephen was like, you know, the, I feel like the first month he was like, so just sit down and look around. Like we got all this super eight footage from um, the band. I think a lot of what's in the open is like Alan, I, Alan's mom or somebody had all this footage that those guys had filmed. Somebody had a super eight camera. Yeah. It might've been Dean. It might've been Dean Kilpatrick had the camera, but anyway, um, we just had all this amazing super eight and it was literally them like riding around in boats and getting wasted in the swamp. And just like, it was just so seventies <laughs> freedom, rock and roll, Florida. Yeah, and exactly. I, it was so exciting to see because a lot of times you don't, you don't just come into a project and get all this incredible super eight that nobody's seen, you know, the, the motorboat scene, the sound of the motorboat engine on the audio track and also the sound of a train passing on the audio track for I ain't the one. Was that something that was just by accident? Nothing is by accident, Brian. Actually, I think some things are predetermined meant to happen. Maybe like this interview. <laughs> Did you use any primary editing software on this? Yeah. Well, I cut on Avid. Oh, which is, Avid. yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of industry, industry standard has been. People keep talking about Premiere, but I'm going to tell you, Avid still, it's a little more stable. But anyway, it has nothing to do with Avid or Premiere. Um, the, okay, so Super 8 footage never has sound. I shouldn't say never. Super 8's always silent when it's like the, just the basic Super 8 that any person would have in the 70s. So, yeah, we added in sound effects. I had assistants like downloading a variety of swamp sounds. You know, they'd come back and I'd be like, I think that's not a Florida swamp. It sounds a little bit more like the Amazon, you know. Right, like, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, also it was like I, I put all this stuff in and then we in the end, you know, we sent it to our sound mix. And, I, you know, I think they stripped a lot of stuff and, and refined it and used their sound effects. And, you know, there's a whole there's a whole team involved, but yeah, I definitely was like, if we don't have, I said, if we don't have trains, train sounds, swamp sounds, um, I made Steven go film a, a fan, like a ceiling fan. I was like, if this film does not have a slowly turning ceiling fan, then it is not a Southern movie. Okay. You know? <laughs> There's these things where it's just like, you know, you need the, the fabric of, of life in North Florida. You know, it's interesting because I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. I'm an LA native. I first heard Skinner when I was a freshman in college in the dorms. Mm. I was up at the University of Oregon. Somebody put on the first two records. And I just remember thinking, it reminded me of the Rolling Stones and Neil Young put together with all the kind of original lyrical thoughts Mm. A lot of people write in vague 
sort of uh, thematic terms, metaphorical terms. Ronnie wrote songs that were descriptive and told stories without yeah. being too literal. But he was able to take that Florida vibe like you're talking about and make it translatable like your movie was able to make it translatable to people from New York. Mm. Critics like Robert Criscow, Village Voice and Chris Morris, who absolutely love Skinner, guys who are hardcore yeah. punk rock writers yeah, yeah. who write about punk rock. And they'll go, no, 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 no. Skinner's awesome, man. Don't even don't even put down yeah. the original Leonard Skinner. Yeah. So like you were saying earlier, that it's not just a regional thing, although regionalism plays a lot in it. There's a need to go out and tell people, like the people that were watching it with me, wait a minute, this isn't just the cigarette lighter Freebird Anthem band. This is a band that had a full breadth, as Al oh, says. Yeah. When I saw that movie, I was like, okay, nothing is going to ever beat this. This is literally going to hmm. be the definitive story because it's so clean. And mm. there was a famous quote that Jimmy Iovine once said, he said, somebody asked him, what's your secret for how to produce a great record? He said, make the music sound as good as it can. Mm. Yeah. Right. When you were doing the film, was it something where you had to make a lot of decisions as to what would fit the simplicity or did, in other words, were there things that had to be rearranged in the edit list or the timeline that you had to do? You know, we went, I mean, it's really chronological, right? I mean, yeah. yes, we start with a crash. And yes, at one point we go, you know, we visit uh, Studio One and we visit the, the um, plane crash site. But really, it's we, we're going album by album. And so that was really, but, and what's helpful is that Skinner is like writing about what's going on with themselves through each album, you know, it's, they're very self-reflective. Yes. So it was easy to structure it that way. And I don't know. I remember like literally the first week that Stephen and I were working together, he said, all right, let's just start with what's fun. <laughs> and I <laughs> love that. He's like, what's fun. And I, I honestly can't remember what the fun thing we started with was, but it, you know, it was like, I'm trying to think, you know, it might've been like simple man. You know, I took Devin Gelfinian who did that rendition of simple man and like cut that together. And it was just these little, we made these little kind of vignettes of songs. We, we chose the songs that we wanted to feature and the artists we wanted to feature. And then it, you know, we put it in order. I mean, there was a lot of, cool stuff that didn't end up we fought for he um he went and filmed the okifinoki swamp and we put swamp music to it yes. i mean it was so cool and it it really it moved the story forward zero percent like our producers were like what is this doing and we were like we're in the swamp it's amazing <laughs> um and they kept fighting it you got to take swamp music out and we were like that's this is like the whole base of this band but eventually it got cut out it, it felt very organic how it came together there really was not a lot of manipulation of anything really i mean originally when i talked to steven like before he i mean he was still shooting interviews he wanted to um do an entire recreation of hell house like at the place where it was the studio loved that i bet right yeah originally they were like sure we'll find the money for that and then of course <laughs> there never was the money for that but you know so it was going to be really i mean i think we actually lucked out that we didn't do that because it would have taken it in a kind of more like arty direction and there was just really no need to do that yeah there's you know? no need to do a recreation and you know like i say the footage that you were able to get yeah and I assume that Stephen did all the principal photography, the, the shot of the plane going over the trees, the trains. I mean, his, his, he, he has amazing people he works with. So, yeah, like sound recording and DP, you know, these are people he's worked with before. Gary Rossington is uh, mm -hmm. an interesting guy. I mean, he has survived, let me see, car crashes. Oh, my God. 
copious amounts of medicinal consumption. How is he still alive? Multiple heart attacks, I hear. And yes. yet <laughs> you can comprehend what he's saying. And yeah. he gets in some great lines. I didn't realize how funny he was until one of the things that he was talking about, Ed King, and how Ed would try oh. to fleece the other guys by buying Slim Jim totally. uh, beef jerky for a quarter and then selling oh it for $1.50 on the road when they were I was hungry. on the floor laughing oh, about that. my God. I'm just curious, the footage of him and Johnny Van Zant cruising around in this giant white Escalade, which is kind mm -hmm. of interesting, going through Shantytown, which yeah. is the, the neighborhood in Jacksonville that they grew up, which was humble beginnings, to put it mildly. How much of that footage did you get to look at and work with? Is that everything they shot or was there like stuff that we didn't get to see that you might want to talk about? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, there was, there was a lot. Um, I mean, you got to remember, this was a few years ago that I cut this film. <laughs> but yeah, they, I mean, what I really remember that didn't make it in is they go in, well, they, they pull up to the house, to the childhood home. And it's hilarious. I think that's in like, um, Johnny's like, Oh no, we better lock our doors. We're going to get robbed around here. <laughs> Cause they're all, you know, they're all fancy now. But, um, then the owner of the house comes around and he's, he's basically like flipping it to, I think rent out. He was going to like Airbnb it. I could be wrong. I'm sorry if you're the owner. and you're That would be a great title for a Skinner album, by the way, Airbnb <laughs> Skinner. Uh. Oh, I thought flipping, flip, flip your house, flipping flip it. Your um, but anyway, so the owner comes up and is like, oh, do you guys want to go inside? So they go in and this house is kind of ripped apart. But um, yeah, I mean, they just, you know, room by room talked about memories and mom always had a pot of do on the stove and mama died here and papa died there i mean it was really incredible and oh that's what you know daddy would have his shotgun in the couch and i almost blew my foot off and it's just all those stories have you seen the um i think it's a mini doc or something on youtube where johnny van zant walks out in his front yard and he says yeah i like to hunt wherever and he has a rifle in his hand he starts like just shooting critters from his front yard. I mean, literally with a rifle yeah. shooting. And I'm like, okay, we're definitely in Florida at this point. Yeah, right. And I was also curious how they got into the house. That was my next question because yeah, that was, was kind of cool. I think the owner was actually kind of like excited to see like these guys are actually here. That's amazing. It kind of, it was like one of those little magical moments for everybody. I got to take my hat off to Johnny just as an aside, you know, to have to do what he had to do to come in and to take over for his brother and to, yeah. you know, the, it's an impossible act to follow mm. because Ronnie was such an original, but yeah. like somebody said in the movie, you know, they had the same mama. They, they, they <laughs> ate the same food when they were yeah. little kids. I mean, right. and he's been such a, a gentleman and such a great spokesman and sort of a, you know, figurehead for the band. And I really enjoy listening to anything that he has to say, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Ed King, because mm. I think that Ed King brings to that documentary, this very valuable quality of perspective from a distance, because mm. he wasn't, he wasn't from the South. He was from Southern California. And mm. um, I want to play right now, another audio clip from the movie where Ed talks about first hooking up with the band and why Netflix in their own description describes this documentary as sentimental. So check this out. I was in this band, the Strawberry Alarm Clock, West Coast band. We had a number one record in the fall of 67. I had been to the South before with the Beach Boys, but you don't really see much when you're just going from a hotel to gig. And I really liked what was going on down there. It was a lot more uh, real than LA was. It just seemed like really down to earth. And I figured if there was any real good rock and music happening, it probably had to be down there. I saw Skinner play the first time. I really liked him, particularly the lead singer, Ronnie. He was just so charismatic, and the music just seemed to flow out of him. And I said, well, you guys got to keep on writing, you know? And uh, a couple weeks later, he called me in my hotel room, and he said, I want you to come down to this club called The Comic Book. We're rehearsing down there. We wrote a new song. I want you to hear it. So I went right down. They played me this song called Need All My Friends, and a chill went down my back. Uh, it just, uh, I was seeing it, you know? It's been so long since I've been gone Lord, I'm tired and I want to go home My throat is raw from singing 
said, I know you got a full lineup, but if you ever need another guitar player or bass player, please give me a call because I'd love to play with you. For anyone who came in late, my guest today is Claire Didier, the editor of If I Leave Here Tomorrow. That's the definitive documentary on the original Leonard Skinner, which is now streaming on Netflix. Check it out. If you haven't seen it, I guarantee you, if you watch this, you will watch it twice. So the one thing and I want to And you'll buy a Skinner album. And you'll buy a Skinner album. <laughs> <laughs> Skinner is, is an interesting thing because, like I say, their fans take it very seriously. It's a social, kind of a social thing, and it has ways of bringing people together. And I want to talk about the night that I met you. In fact, if it were not for Ronnie Van Zant and his hat, so uh, his, his trademark gambler hat, uh, Claire and I never would have met. It was three years ago uh, around this time, obviously uh, Halloween at a big backyard party in Pasadena. And you came dressed as Prince, which I thought was awesome. And I was dressed like Ronnie and I had the snakeskin hat band, which I got from this old biker in new England. Who's pretty big online doing it, but I didn't have the budget for the, uh, the custom Van Zant uh, gambler hat. They sell for like $600 at uh, Texas Hatters. But it was funny how you walked up to me and just started calling me Ronnie. Go, hey, Ronnie. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, Prince and Ronnie Van Zant are like two of my favorite people, which maybe not a lot of people can say. But yeah, no, it was so cool to see you because, I mean, I really, I grew very fond of Ronnie Van Zant cutting this film. Like, I just, I, I had dreams about him. We would hang out. Like, he, it was... He's a really fascinating, incredibly gifted in, in strange ways you wouldn't imagine um, guy. And so it was, I would always joke, like I would always joke, like I, I'm in love with Ronnie. And then there's Ronnie at this party and I'm Prince. And I was like, this is incredible. So it was really fun to meet you that way. It was, it was, and, it was, and nobody, and that was the other thing. I mean, I'm a little evangelical about my Skinner and I really was at the time because I was like living and breathing Skinner, but people just, I feel like people don't understand Skinner, you know, especially yeah. in Los Angeles, New York people. I feel like a lot of people write them off. A lot of people can only associate Skinner with what Skinner is now and what Skinner says now and the confederate flag and all that steven kayak and i have done a judy garland film together we've also done a leonard skinner film together and i remember somebody saying to me i'll watch your judy garland film but i'm not watching your leonard skinner film because those guys are you know assholes well you know the band has been recreated in the media's mind and maybe in their own mind to an extent but Unfortunately, we live in this era now where regionalism and fragmentation yeah. has become so bad. They came out, Ronnie was instrumental in getting Jimmy Carter elected president in 1976. Oh, totally, yes. And they did a series of concerts at, at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, which are part of the live Skinner record, that were designed to raise money for Jimmy Carter. Saturday Night Special is not a, a song about, let me get a gun and shoot somebody because it's Saturday night. It is a gun control song. Yeah. Ronnie Van Zant did not have, as Artemis Pyle has said, he did not have a racist bone in his body. Yeah. Did you guys debate about how to handle that aspect of it? Um, I was really excited to tackle that because, you know, as I learned what their, how, you know, as I learned about the band and their origins, it became very clear to me that. You know, people, I'm from kind of a small town, so I, I, see, I see the difference between, like, liberals from the city and the country folk, and I, I feel like in the past few years especially, like, being from the country has got, gotten kind of a bad name. You get kind of a bad rep, you know? Yeah. It's like, I feel like it's something that's not talked about where there's a difference between um ignorance and being an asshole you know like i will buy that skinner boys did not associate bad 
connotations, racism, pro-slavery, that they did not associate that with the Dixie flag when they were coming into fame. I will give them that. You know, 20 years later, 10 years later, like, yes, you by then you have you have learned, you have spoken to people, you have left Jacksonville, right? So, but I will give their origins. Yeah, you know, it's ignorance. They literally had not been out of Jacksonville. There was, there's no internet. They're not reading books. They're not going to school. You know, they, you have to give that to them um, that that was not coming from a place of hate. I think they literally thought that they were like, like they say, they were hippies. They thought, you know, they were the most open-minded people they knew. <laughs> exactly. It's all relative. And it, it's why I, it pisses me off when I talk to people who are like, nope, I've written them off. They're assholes just for associating with the flag. Right. To me, right. it's like, you need to go back. You need to think about what you're saying and understand like where this came from. They should not still be waving it. So I'll, I'll leave that on the floor. So I... I think that's such a big part of their story is, and, and, and I also think it's why they're so unique and their sound is so mind blowing because it it literally comes from the swamp drinking the local mushrooms and, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, just sweating it out. And I, I think that's why Ed King is such a, like you were saying, he's such a welcome voice because he is that outsider. Right. Really gives that, you know, you can, you see the difference between him and those guys and he never fit in. You know, we can talk endlessly about the Confederate flag and the controversy, but let's listen to what Gary Rossington and Artemis Pyle had to say about the Confederate flag and the conflict that it brought up internally within the band. We went to England and they acted like we were the Beatles. And we couldn't believe it. We were looking at each other like, God, can you believe this? They'd never heard of Southern music or Southern bands. Over there, anybody from America is a Yankee. They call you Yankees. But we said, no, we're from Southern America. Yeah, you're a Yankee. We didn't like it because it was like California was a different scene and New York was a different scene and the South. And that's where the flag came from. It was a gimmick for us at first, you know, Southern Band. MCA made that a gimmick, a hype thing, you know, Southern Band, you know, Hard Rock and Rebels and Drunken Fighters and all this stuff. And they put out that publicity and hype. That's what it is, nothing but hype. Yes, it was the record company pushing a Southern Band. No, it didn't bother me to play in front of a rebel flag because I know how I feel. I didn't think about it that deeply then. I have since, and look what they've done. They've taken the flag down on a lot of things because it does represent hatred. It's like the flag got kidnapped by the KKK. They carried it, and all these evil people used the Confederate flag as a hate thing. It's them against the world, kind of. We never, ever one time meant the Confederate flag to offend anyone. But I know it's naive to say that, too, because it does hurt people. And it does remind them of the war and slavery and all that. But we weren't into it for that. We were just showing where we were from, Southern music. I was talking to Al Al Cooper about this, and we both agreed that Free is one of our favorite bands. And if you break it down musically and structurally, the first couple of, of Skinner records were so influenced by Free and then sort of Bad Company borrowed from Skinner and kind of started doing more Southern sounds to their music. And it was only after a while that it started to get a, away from the kind of the English blues, heavy mm. blues sound, because that's really when you look at the first album, there's a lot of British rock influences. And so I think amazingly enough, the early 70s was about integrating different right. different concepts and genres of music. Their bands performed on bills with totally different bands that would be have nothing to do with their audience base. And we've right. gone now to an era now where segregation 
yeah. is coming back more than it's ever been before. And I right. think that's, I think that's really sad because like you're mentioning the people of your friends or the people that you know that have written Skinnered off, you know, we need to get away from the symbolism, mm. start looking at the entire perspective of where people are from. I mean, yeah, right. And there's a story there, you yeah, know, there's yeah, a story there- and, and, you know, any of us could have been born in the swamp and would we have done that with, you know, our, I, I don't know. It's yeah. I, that's why I guess that's why I work in doc- documentary because I find these stories fascinating. The ending of the film was really interesting to me. Um, I don't know if you remember the ending of American Graffiti, where they kind of go from this sort of sunny picture to like this crawl that describes, you know, how everybody died. And when you guys flashed Day on the Green, Oakland, California, 1977, it's a free bird. It's a very famous thing. It's one of the most famous clips. And you've got all these these beautiful tan California girls. They're like <laughs> bouncing wildly in front of the stage. Everything's sunny and festive and happy. And as the song reaches its finale beneath the, the name of each member of the band, and I'm including the uh, backup singers, the Honkettes, Cassie yeah. Gaines, Leslie Hawkins, and Jojo Billingsley. I want to say their names because I think they were very important. The dates of each member of the band's birth and death is shown. Yeah. And it's the average age, I think works out to about 45 years old. Oh, and I yeah. thought that was just, a staggering way to mm. end that. Was that, a, was that a mutual concept you guys came up with or was that something that you thought of? Um, gosh, I, I mean, I'll get, I'll give it to Stephen Kayak. I'll give it to him. I bet, I bet that was his, his idea, but um, I, I agree. I mean, it's just, I think it was because we wanted people to think about how old like Ronnie and everyone in the plane crash was when they died and and you know just reminding the viewer of how young these guys were what they did during the, in their brief trajectory so naturally we're going we're going to do that for everybody and then really like realizing like oh my god so many of them really just died so young and had hard living dying young lives tragic they talk about the classic Southern tragedy, you know, the, like the Gothic Southern tragedy. Totally. And, mm. You know, even the guys who didn't die in the plane crash, Leon Wilkinson, the bass Oof. player, passed away at 49 from acute yeah. alcoholism. And Billy Powell died at, uh, in his late 50s. The day after, his cardiologist demanded, Billy, check yourself in the hospital or you're not going to make another week. Mm. And he just said, you know, it's when it's my time, it's my time. And I think some of that... Uh, some of that philosophy really hurt them. And then, of course, Jojo died of cancer. Yes. And mm-hmm. then I, I got to mention Bob Burns, who was mm. one of the most incredible drummers. And he died in 2015 at the age yeah. of six, 64. And that was a single car accident. Mm-hmm. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. And then, of course, Ed King passed away in Ugh. 2018 at 68. Yeah. I heard that Ed actually lived long enough to see the movie come he out. He did. To- do you know anything? Can you tell us anything about that? Or do you know much about you that? You know, um, I, I remember that he got to see it. He was too sick to come to South by. South by Southwest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause I, it, it all happened right around the same time. Um, I know he got to see it. I can't say I was on a zoom with him. I don't, I don't know, but I, I know that it was, it was totally positive. And I think I think he I think his the rivalry between him and um, Gary, I think, cracked him up (laughs) because I feel like during the interview, he was kind of bitter. But I think he was just like, yep, okay, you guys did right by that. Gary and him were a little they had an issue. And I think it was mostly because, well, uh, why do we need this guy from L.A.? And Mm. Ronnie knew what a good arranger Ed was. He knew what a great, that Ed could play bass and guitar. He knew that yeah. Ed, Ed could arrange and, and Ed wrote Saturday Night Special. And I mean, he let's was just amazing. talk about royalties too. You know, it's like the drummer of the band was not getting royalties off um, Sweet Home Alabama. You know what I mean? Like, I, it, I, I so didn't I know think, that. Yeah. I think there's there's a little bad blood with all that stuff too, you know. If yeah. you look, when you look at the albums and you look who gets the credits, it's like there's um it's not the whole, it's not the whole band. 
it, it was it was strange. The whole Artemis Pyle thing. You know, I was supposed to interview Artemis. We were we were going to do a thing on his movie, and I tried to call him up and explain to him what Zoom was, and not to knock Artemis, <laughs> but he he wasn't having a techno a technologically um, happy day. So he said, you know, you want to you want to call me and do a print interview, and I said, no, this is you know, I want to talk to you about your movie. And he kind of sort of had a mini meltdown and he said, I got to go. And, and I just kept thinking, what if I had just called him and put him on a, a speakerphone and just recorded, I've got a high yeah. end, high end digital and just recorded it off of that. So Artemis, if you're out there, man, I'd still like to talk to you, but <laughs> let me change tracks for a second and go talk about some of the other things that you've done. There's three things that you've done among many. I mean, your resume is really impressive, but any ideas you can share with us about who Killed Tupac, which was on A&E, a six-part series, <laughs> Sid and Judy, the Judy Garland documentary, and also something you worked on in about 10 years ago, The Source Family. Do you, hmm. you want to talk about any of those things? Well, I will say I went from working on the Tupac thing to the um, Skinner project. So I thought that was kind of cool. cool. Yes, cool. And I was, yeah, and I was like, you know what? Tupac and these like gangsters are really just, the same people as Ronnie and his <laughs> his band, you know. It's like, I, I totally agree with that. I totally it was just like, man, they're just wildly talented people coming, you know, through what, like, where they were raised and how they were raised, and just shining through all of it. It's incredible. The Tupac documentary. You did the editing on that. Well, it was a four-part series. It was the right. who, there was a lot of Tupac going on then because it was like the anniversary of his, his yeah. death. Yeah. Tell me about the Judy Garland documentary, and you did that around the same time as the Skinner documentary. So, what was that I think? Like? I think Stephen and I rolled out literally finished Skinner and rolled right into Judy Garland, which I also felt like man, Ronnie and Judy would have totally hung out. <laughs> like they, I think he, let's see, she died in 69. Like he was barely getting out of Jacksonville, but we were like, man, is there a world where they could have like met? And I mean, they both love the party. I think I made like a Venn diagram of what, <laughs> they both love being barefoot. They both love the party. They both were great singers. Um, I can't remember. There was a whole thing. It was very funny. But they both controlled their their milieu or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, right. They were both short. They were the boss. Both they were both the boss. boss. I mean, Ronnie married a woman named Judy. Like it just it goes it just goes on and on. Interesting. I'd like to see that diagram. <laughs> <laughs> like I, there's I, there's these great shots of Judy playing pool, you know, right. in New York, and it's like, yeah, Ronnie would have been there. They would have totally hung out. But anyway, um, but yeah, two totally different eras. So it was, uh, you know, it was a similar approach. There was a lot less um, footage of Judy for the era that we were covering. You know, part of the fun of the Skinnerd film was um, just, you know, Stephen and also Bunny, who was one of our archive researchers, an associate producer, she was out there trying to find people who would have photos or, or footage from these Skinner concerts in the 70s, you know, and it's like, you're not going to find that with Judy in the 50s. Um, it, it, what exists, exists. For the Judy film, we had a bunch of never heard before audio recordings from the Sid Luft estate yeah that for, was great her stuff. husband yeah yeah that was really incredible and you just you have to kind of pile through hours and hours and hours of drunken phone calls to find some some magic but um it's part of like the fun of this job is you know i watched like all of the judy garland show like the entire season or yeah two seasons so there's one phone call that's very memorable, and I, I guess it's between Sid Luft and I, I don't know who the other person is. There's some studio executive, but it would have been similar to what would have happened with Leonard Skinner, where they're saying she's got to clean up her act, you know, because yes. if she doesn't do something. Yeah, totally. The similarities there. 
they definitely would have enjoyed uh, going out and, you know, knocking a few down. Yes. I just think it's amazing how if I leave here tomorrow and we're talking to Claire Didier, the editor that worked on this amazing Skinner documentary that is right now on Netflix. So check it out. What I find amazing is how, okay, I will go on Facebook and I'll go into these Facebook groups and, you know, the comments show up in my feed or the post and people are always saying, well, I heard that Artemis said that it was amazing how brave his friends were Mm. when they met their deaths or Gary's famous quote, when Ronnie got drunk with one interviewer where he said, well, let me ask you a question. You know, how the fuck do you think you're going to get out of this room? Right. They don't attribute it to your movie. Your movies become so ingrained into the culture that it's literally like a Google reference (laughs) go-to source for any quote. And yet people don't seem to like attribute it to your film, but you know what I'm saying? It's become like sort of like the fabric of the story. And that's, that's pretty uh, phenomenal to me. That's pretty cool. I don't have much more to add. I just wanted to tell you how much I love this film. I think that I would go so far as to say, you remember those rhythm machines that they would make, uh, the light boxes that they would make, like the disco light boxes that pulse with the music? If you, totally. want to, if you want to see good editing, check out this movie because the editing moves to the music, like to the grooves and to the rhythms of the, of the music. And that to me is uh, simplicity sometimes, you know, like with the Beatles and Nirvana, mm. is the hardest thing in the world to do. Is there anything that when you were starting out as an editor and this, I don't want to start going back too far, but did something inspire you or did certain films inspire you to want to do Were there music documentaries you saw or any kind of documentaries that said, Oh, I got to try to do this because everybody starts out as a fan. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I mean, I've always been a music head. I've always listened to music. I've always music's always kind of ruled my life, but as far as like, editing it was never music docs really i you know i just i love a good story this sounds so cliche but it's true i i mean i remember watching like american movie in the late 90s and just being like oh my god yes you know i just like just put when you actually sit down and and hang out with somebody for two hours and see what makes them tick. I've just always found that really fascinating when it is combined with music. For me, it's, it's a dream come true. I mean, that's why the Skinner film was so fun because music totally guided it. You know, I mean, we sat down initially and we're like, okay, these are the 30 songs we're going to use. And our producer's like, you can use 11. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, there's no way we're not making the film if we can only use 11. So I think, I can't remember what it ended up. It was in the 20s. The tracks you choose, like Tuesday's Gone and stuff like that, and the way you put them in, you know, fit everything so well. Uh, I assume the movie's been on a DVD for quite some time. If I leave here tomorrow? Yeah. I, um, can, you, can you buy a DVD nowadays? I don't know. I really don't know. In the South, you can. <laughs> well, I better go to Jacksonville and buy myself a DVD of this film because I don't think I have one. <laughs> You know, the physical media is kind of cool just because you always say, whoa, it's, you know, it's gone Netflix till the end of the month. What do I do then? And the physical media is nice to have. Until you don't have DVD player anymore, but yeah. 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 Well, that's the big thing that people talk about is when they stop making the hardware, you got nothing to support the software. Anyway, my guest today has been Claire Didier, the editor of If I Leave Here Tomorrow, a film about Leonard Skinner, which is right now streaming on Netflix and you're listening to Gonzarilla. And uh, this is a podcast about rock and roll, but soft spot for Ronnie and Leonard Skinner and the original band, big time. Anyway, Claire, I wanted I wanted to say to yes. Gonzo Land that I am wearing my Shoko shirt. Oh, yes. And I just wanted to be sure. I know yeah. you guys can't see it, but I am rocking it. And uh, I should have been wearing my Neil Young Tonight's Night shirt, but uh, <laughs> you are, you are. <laughs> this is the magic of podcast. Boom. well it's been really fun to talk to you brian all right claire to me you'll always be a ronnie van zant impersonator so it's great okay i i I take that as the ultimate compliment (laughs) um and i hope we can all get back to going to things like halloween parties because without that party this interview would not have been happening and it would have just been like that's a great skinner movie but i wish i knew who edited that so cool i love (laughs) it i remember you said i said i just cut the skinner a skinner film you said the skinner film (laughs) and i was like yes i would like to say in my opinion it is the 
Skinner film. And I remember saying, that's the greatest movie, like Dave Grohl, like that's the greatest movie they ever made. You know, I was like, that was cool. I was very, very impressed. And I, I walked over to some people and I said, do you know that is over there? She edited that Leonard Skinner movie. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that Prince early aughts kind of, it was kind of like the Super Bowl era that I was yeah. going for. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope if there's ever a Prince documentary, you reconsider and possibly think about editing that because I'd uh, never say no, but I realized how it would be maybe a lot harder, be a lot more baggage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's about that time. And I want to thank you guys for checking out this podcast, sharing some of the great backstories about the editing and concepts behind the making of the documentary. If I leave here tomorrow, which is the story of the original Leonard Skinner. It's streaming now on Netflix and is one of the most watchable and complete documentaries you are ever going to see. My thanks to the film's editor, Claire Didier, for joining us today. It's been my pleasure, and I hope yours. Oh, that was really fun. Thanks so much. All right. You take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. That's what I feel I'm here to do now is speak for the band Leonard Skinner from the beginning to the very end, you know. It's the music that lives on.
One of the great ones, Leonard Skinner. Let's hear it for them.